What's happening, world? I'm your host, the Wizard of Waz, Benji Wozniak. And this week, me and Kara are going to switch up, and I'm going to be lead mic. And we have special guest, Dorbins, who was on before. He's the movie producer. So what we're going to talk about this week is everything Lord of the Rings. And Dorbins has a certain thing he wants to start out with. So Dorbins, take it away. Okay, so I think that the Rings of Power is utter and total garbage. It's the most generic thing on the face of the planet. It doesn't do anything in terms of inspiring you or providing anything of interest when it comes to the genre of fantasy, which again, we all understand. Uh, Tolkien has had a very large mark on the fantasy genre. So the fact that this show based off of his material is so generic and so bland and so devoid of life is actually an achievement for Amazon Studios to achieve because they've sucked any kind of individuality out of this show. That's sort of what I think about The Rings of Power to start off with. Ben? Okay, so I actually thought the season one was just, it was it was okay, it was good. I mean, it, it, you needed to have this descriptive situation of, you know, the different races and how the rings came about and, you know, the building of, of, of Sauron. And you, you needed this to continue, like, the, the first six movies you, so you go back in time to figure out how this all came about how he tricked humans dwarves and, and elves to to wear the rings and and basically come under his manipulation so i thought it was okay i just think that it was it was a decent beginning it was you, it was a, it was a season one so you like basically you're looking at like the the introductions the the you know the the tellings of the tales so yeah it wasn't jumping off the screen like oh my god this is amazing but it was good enough to get to season two okay look ben this is not really the best kind of selling point you're trying to you're trying to do here you're saying that we would have to watch what is it eight hours of this show to to get to the good stuff in season two i mean that's just not (laughs) i mean most people are not going to commit that much time just for the hope or the possibility that the later seasons are going to be better like, no one's going to be doing that. And I mean, again, another show that released during the same period is set in a fantasy world with medieval culture and society as its backdrop, right? House of the Dragon had the same kind of issues, and you could probably say more issues leading into its release than The Rings of Power did. Because House of the Dragon was coming off of the heels of horrible finales for that entire series because season seven and season eight were not the best seasons of that entire show and there is a large portion of the fan base was not happy how the show ended house of the dragon had an uphill battle but i would say that house of the dragon did a better job of introducing characters giving you compelling drama giving you incredible backdrops to layer on the scenes and just everything you would want in terms of good storytelling visual storytelling right because in the rings of power besides all the other crap that they were doing They were doing a lot of telling you rather than showing you what this show was supposed to be about. Because aesthetically, the show looked like a bunch of 
video game cutscenes and not that great cutscenes either. It just looked like it was just a hodgepodge of a bunch of different elements and things put into one show to make it seem epic or to make it seem like it's that it has more gravitas than it does. Now for me personally, I'm more of a Middle Earth fan than I am a Westeros fan personally. But when you compare House of the Dragon and the Rings of Power, honestly, there's just no comparing the two because House of the Dragon beats it wholeheartedly. Now, on another hand, what Rings of Power tried to do in order to hold on to the meager <laughs> viewers that it had towards the end of it is that the show constantly tried to mirror certain scenes and certain moments in the original trilogy and did it poorly. Now, there is a number of scenes that I can list here, right? But the things that are coming to mind initially is the things like with if Sildor essentially having a voice in his head when we first meet him, sort of alluding to how, you know, the ring is whispering to him and trying to get him to do things that he doesn't want to do. And there's just a whole bunch of other things littered throughout the series that do that constantly, where it's like, ooh, let me, let me dangle this Easter egg or this moment that you're familiar with from the original trilogy without giving you anything of actual substance. It's like junk food, and it's not even that great junk food. <laughs> It's bad junk food. That's essentially what the show is. No, it did. I think a lot of it was them thinking, all right, you should know who these people are already. Like, by watching the other trilogies, you should know who Gladriel is. You should know who, you know, Sauron is. You should know who all, the, you know, Gandalf. You should know these characters. I mean, Gandalf, of course, they haven't actually said it's Gandalf, but it's Gandalf. Right. But this is the thing. Even though this is a popular IP, a lot of the point of the show is to introduce this to either a newer generation of viewers to this particular show or this particular world, and also to appeal to anyone else who isn't familiar with the story itself. You're trying to get newer viewers because you know, I mean, they spent all this money to acquire the rights to this popular IP. So they know that those particular people are going to be almost guaranteed viewers to this, at least to the first episode, right? So the whole appeal is to attract new viewers because that's the same thing that Game of Thrones did when it came out. It didn't just rely on the core fan base of the books. It also had to attract outside viewers and spectators to the show. That's what made it a very popular show at the time. So the same principle applies to the Rings of Power. They can't sit there and assume that everyone knows what this particular show and what this particular series is about. There isn't a single IP out there that has that kind of totality appeal to everyone. You can say that there's probably a number of them, and I would say The Lord of the Rings is probably one of them, where it's like there's a mass appeal, as in there's a lot of people who know sort of what the story is about-ish, but going into the show assuming that your viewers know what you're talking about especially if you're trying to get newer viewers and newer subscribers to your subscription service then you have to do the work of making sure that you cover those bases because i know it's shocking but there are people out there who have no idea what the story of the lord of the rings is and again like <laughs> it, the show made it so obvious it hurts when it comes to the things like with the wizard that fell from the sky. Because again, we all know he's a wizard, okay? <laughs> Whether he's Gandalf or not, or if he's some blue wizard, we all understand that he is most likely a wizard because he's coming off like a wizard. He has the beard. He has the like, I'm the old wise person, right? Even though he has amnesia or whatever. Like that stuff is totally obvious. And the other thing is also obvious is how much 
uh, how much we all knew that Halbrand was Sauron. Like, they made that so abundantly clear from the get-go, it was, it hurt. Like, it was like, you don't need to slap us that hard with that piece of information. At least make us work for it. Because everything with the, with the, you know, him coincidentally meeting Galadriel in the middle of the ocean when they arrived in Numenor, him walking by a blacksmith area and you see the 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 um the suspicious music playing in the background as he passes that because we, we all know that Sauron is very skilled in the art of crafts and craft making obviously because he did the ring so when we see him pass by there we're like um okay now I can put two and two together what you're trying to do with this guy now either he is Sauron or he is a very close associate of Sauron someone we're very familiar with right so those kind of things were very very obvious even if you don't know anything about the story of the Lord of the Rings in general. You know that this guy is most likely either not who he claims to be and is either going to be evil or is going to be turned into evil. But we know that he's going to go down a dark path. Like that was clear and obvious as <laughs> anything could ever be. So that wasn't an issue. And oh man, and I blame you for this, Ben. Because you had, I had to watch this show again and I watched it on double speed, and it did not help. But oh my god, the show felt like it went on forever. Everything just felt a sludgy mess that I had to, to, to crawl my way out of. Just to get out and away from a scene. It just took forever for anything to happen. And as an audience member, you should not have, you should not be feeling that. Especially with a story this familiar. You shouldn't have to feel like you're wasting your time and your life watching the show. Because things just did not happen. And I watched it again at double speed. And it did not help. Well, I mean, of course it helped because I got through the episodes quicker, but it still felt longer than it should be. And that's just... May I ask, it sounds like this series is chalked up to a lot of like poor writing and adapting from the original source material. Do you find if there was a different team behind it, it would have been better? Or do you think that these this story, this prequel story that they're trying to tell is so lackluster that it doesn't matter? Honestly, it's going to sound like a bit of a cop-out, but I think it's a little bit of both because the production itself had a lot of issues behind the scenes with a bunch of different creatives going in and out of the project. And usually when things like that happen, especially in big budget productions, it's generally going to harm the continuity of the story being told. There were so many people who either were let go or decided to move on because they can kind of sense and feel that the show that they're trying to tell isn't going to be faithful to the source material. And again, for me, I'm not like super hardcore about being super faithful to the source material. I'd like it to be as close as possible because generally you would tell a better story because we can see this mirrored again. I'm going to keep bringing up Game of Thrones as an example of this, right? People notice that the better seasons of the show was when George R.R. R. Martin was involved in the show, right? Because again, he is also involved in the first season of House of the Dragon, right? And it made a difference because you're sticking closer to the story of the creator of this world. Now, are we all realistically expecting them to do everything verbatim? The original trilogy didn't do that. It didn't do everything verbatim. But you got the initial story and the themes, the plot, the characters, all of those key things were 
intact for the most part. That's what's going to keep the attention of those who are fans of the books and will keep the attention of those who know nothing about this world that they're trying to create. With their production of this popular IP, they're going to put their own spin on it, right? Now, people are going to be more open to this spin if it stays faithful to the core idea and principles of the story being told. Because if they don't, then why even buy the property and try and make a show out of it? If you're just going to change it into something else, it kind of defeats the purpose of what's happening here. In short, yes, <laughs> I think it's, it's both. Do you have any thoughts about that, Ben? So I see what you're saying. I really do. I, um, I've heard like numerous things about the production of this movie, um, this show. I heard that it was thrown together because a lot of people were saying that the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit series was basically predominantly a white, non-female lead. Like they were like, oh, everybody in there is, is white. Everybody in there, that the leads aren't, aren't women. So we're going to do this thing where it's going to hit that demographic of, of, of viewers and I see what you're saying, like it was thrown around and then other people jumped in and out. And I think they might have had a vision at first of how they wanted to do it. And then like they felt pressured with like all these things thrown at them. Like, well, wait a minute, well, we have to hit this demographic of people, this demographic of people. And it kind of got away from the original story, whereas they're more focused on like, let's have, you know, Gladriel is the star and then let's have this elf is the star. And like, you don't really know who's the star because like it just bounces back and forth about who's in like the lead in this this series of course it's glad real but it didn't seem like it because like the, i was more interested in the elf story than i was in hers if that makes any sense you know like him like being a ranger and being stuck on the um on, on the on the plane having to watch over um mordor and wait for the 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 coming of the evil and you know watching the people that were uh sauron's minions like basically they were people that fought with sauron so he had to like watch them but he ended up falling in love with the girl and the people and then the people end up like basically doing exactly what they, they everybody thought they were going to do and go to Sauron's side so I just thought that that was more of a story I was more interested in than uh, Gladriel's brother dying and her wanting vengeance and and they kind of made her out to be like this not nice person that I couldn't get behind I was like oh you know she's kind of like whiny complaining and she was supposed to be like this general of like the elves and like this really great leader and then all of a sudden, they get her like by herself, and she's just like kind of wishy-washy. Okay, okay. Finally, there's something we can agree on because I think that the portrayal of Galadriel was just—it felt nothing like the original character. She wasn't ethereal. She didn't command the room when she walked into it. She was very bland and boring and very whiny, very entitled to things. The thing that I keep going back to and keep thinking about is how in the very same time period, House of the Dragon came out. They had similar issues where they were, you know, changing the ethnicities or the backgrounds of certain characters, right? Generally, people stopped caring about any of that kind of stuff because again when you make drastic changes like that they have to be justified you can't just do it because you want to please a certain section of the audience right so house of the dragon faced the same issues as the rings of power in a lot of ways they managed to deal with those issues in a captivating and interesting way for the viewer because uh who was it the valarian I forget his name, but his character was changed, right? It only added to the story because it made it very clear that Rhaenys's, Rhaenys, Rhaeny, Rhaena, Rhaenys, whichever one of the R's, the daughter of the king, it made it even more clear to 
the people of Westeros that she had been unfaithful to her husband, right? Who because she's about to be the queen of the Seven Kingdoms when her father dies, right? So it may it, it was a interesting addition. It made the plot and the themes that they were going for in the series a little bit more compelling and a little bit more clear for the characters within the show and for of course us watching the show so it added to the story is what i'm trying to get is the point i'm trying to get at here right those changes to the story add something to the story they don't just exist for existence sake when you make certain changes like that in a story that are superficial changes people are going to notice and people are going to be reacting to that because you're changing the story a and the changes that you're making to the story aren't really enhancing the story you're trying to tell so naturally people are going to be angry about that because if you're not going to tell the story that you purchased all this money to tell then when you make changes that do not work just be ready for criticism so yeah i mean that's essentially what i have to say about that and the thing is is that all of these points that we're talking about we only start seeing these things and start noticing these things and start nitpicking at these things when the story that is being told told is not engaging if your story isn't engaging then you're doing something fundamentally wrong especially if you have this ginormous budget at your disposal you're gonna ask questions like what's wrong with you and what is your where's the leadership in this thing no as a reader of the books i see where you come from. I, I i do i see how they're supposed to be portrayed and how they were portrayed in the show so as far as my take on the fellowship of the rings so for me i didn't like it I know everybody's shocked at this. I didn't like it. I just, I didn't like it. And I think there's a part of me that didn't like it because I was ruined on the Fellowship of the Rings years and years before when I went and watched this awful, awful Lord of the Rings movie where they had like, it was animation and manimation, like the screen in the background where they have the people walking behind it. So it just ruined me for this. And then there was a part in the Fellowship of the Rings where Frodo dances and it looked just like that part from the, from the fellow the lord of the rings movie i saw and then after that i just couldn't get into it i was like i just can't i just can't get into this movie because it seemed like they followed suit to that and if you watch the lord of the rings cartoon that i'm talking about frodo looks exactly like the character he is now so it was like they took the the, the cartoon person and they pictured someone to do it uh elijah wood and they just were like here and they fit like made him look exactly like they did on the cartoon and it just it just ruined it Okay, uh, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do some pushback on this because I don't really see what you're talking about when it comes to Frodo looking like the animation animation cartoon. Although I will agree that Peter Jackson himself said this that he was inspired by that film. You can actually see certain scenes that he sort of expanded on in the trilogy itself. But to say that Elijah Wood looks like that cartoon, I just don't see the comparison there listen he looks exactly like him down to the hair if you google him if you google him you'll be like oh i see what you're talking about he looks just like elijah wood you know, you know i'm gonna have you talk and i'm gonna google it. yeah so for me the comparison doesn't hit all that well i mean obviously it's the same character being portrayed but i i would definitely think that elijah wood's frodo was definitely much better than the animated version because uh, again i can obviously understand the similarities in terms of some of the scenes you might see and because i was watching them back to back 
not back to back, but at the same time, and you can kind of see the similarities in the scene structures. But yeah, I I just I don't see when you say that Frodo is essentially like I don't know like a carbon copy of <laughs> of the animation version. I just don't I don't see that. I'm talking about the look, the hair, the dress. I'm not. It was like he just looked and said, "All right, I'm gonna get this guy that looks just like this character from the from the cartoon." And I'm going to put him in the lead. Fine. Let's just say that you're right about that. That the look is what is putting you off to the character. <laughs> Which I don't get. Because I, I would still look at the performance of the actor. And the performance that he has in totality in the entire series. And base my opinion off of that. But I'm just thinking, where's your criticism of that when it comes to the rings of power? I mean, every characterization down to how they're dressed how they look was completely different from what we understand of the characters in the source material in the legendarium like they, they are literally night and day comparisons so i i don't get elijah woods frodo in the trilogy is comparable well okay i guess on the look fine but i i don't get how that is a major hindrance to to the fellowship of the ring it's like where's the criticism about how the elves are portrayed in the series galadriel for instance why is she not ethereal why doesn't she feel like a being from another world why isn't she six foot why is it that the numenorians and their armor looks like it's some 3d printed crap attached to them it's like where's the criticism about that instead you're going back and criticizing what i would almost say is a near perfect it's probably going to be the best version of that trilogy that we get going back to the original trilogy and criticizing those minor minute things you know these kind of criticisms i would have about the rings of power mainly because their story isn't all that interesting <laughs> so i would go around nitpicking all this stuff because there is anything of interest in the story that's being told so of course i would go back and nitpick on that but with a near perfect adaptation of this series the best around hands down i find it hard to go back and criticize a manimation cartoon that came out in the late 80s or whatever and try and compare that to the to elijah wood's performance hey i will say that i watched the extended version and i liked that better than the one that was released all right i will say that i will say that the one that released i didn't like i was like nope uh, and maybe it's because they didn't have all the backdrops all the things that like i know as a reader that I was like, oh, well, you know, what about this? And what about that? In my mind, I'm, I'm in the book. I'm in the book when I'm watching the movie. So I, and if you, you can't get in the book, I hope we all know that when someone says I'm in the book, it does happen because your mind goes to the book and you stare at the screen and you go, that's not how. And like, you just see things differently as a reader. If you're watching the film, you're like, wait a minute. No, that didn't happen. Nope, this didn't happen. Nope, they're trying to make something happen that didn't happen. And it just, for me, it just, I wasn't, I wasn't. And there's a part. And it made me mad because when Gladriel is giving out all the tokens to people, like all the, all the people that are in the quest, Gimli comes up and says, I just want a piece of your hair. And they never get into detail about that. So he looks like some creepy dude that wants a piece of this woman's hair. And you got to get, if you know the story behind that, you know that his ancestor made a weapon out of her hair and, and he wanted to do the same. 
you see, I'm not sure that you watch the extended edition because they go through that whole where they give more context to what happened. Now, I haven't seen the theatrical version in a very long time. The only viewing of the trilogy that I have nowadays is the extended cut. I'm just going based off of that. They definitely go through and explain or give context to why he was given those three hairs. I believe it was in a scene that was with Gimli on a boat and you sort of hear Galadriel's voiceover and his voiceover as they sort of explain why he wants the hair and all that. And it explains obviously that he wants to lock her hair because he obviously thinks that she's beautiful and she she's the most elegant being he's seen in his entire existence. And I believe if I'm not mistaken that he wants it to as an heirloom to his house or something along those lines where he wants to fashion or make some kind of, of weapon out of it. Now, I'm not sure if you're still taking this from the theatrical release, but in terms of the extended edition, it was definitely explained. No, I was saying on the theatrical release, they didn't say it. Yeah, I'm like, they didn't say it. Yeah, they didn't get into that. And like, for me, it was a very important part. And it wasn't heirloom of the house, but the heirloom of the house is an axe. They don't get into that. The heirloom of the house is an axe that Gimli's family lost a long time ago, and he wants to remake it for a stance of power. If you know the dwarven race, they lost power and gold. That's what they lost. They love they love weapons and they love gold and bearded women. Okay, so for me, I just want to get a sense, and I'm sure everyone else who's listening wants to get a sense of what is your critique of the rings of power, whether it be in terms of you know aesthetics the looks of it the story being told the themes all those kind of things like what would be your criticisms of the show in general well i agree with you like they don't make the the race of humans that are overseas the way they're supposed to be in the book like the or they're called uh, luminorians they're not they're not these big if you were using bible references it would be the the um what's the name of that the nephrim they would be the nephrim they're supposed to be bigger stronger yeah, they're supposed to be like this race of humans that is, like you said, the ultimate. I definitely changed that because they didn't look nothing like that. I was like, they're just normal people. And um, the cities they lived in were supposed to be this like grand cities and everything. And to me, it just looked like um, the city from Desolation of Smog, the one that they go to. It looked just like that. I was like, this looks just like the same city from the Desolation of Smog, like, except that instead of being all broken down, this is how it is, like, if it was perfect. So I didn't like that. The elves were not grand. I was like, wait a minute. The elves, even in all the movies, like the first six movies, you could tell an elf. I mean, elves, they radiated, they glowed. You look at them and you're like, yeah, these people are not only smart, but they're badasses and they will mess you up. In this one, they were okay. Like you looked at me and you were like, all right, yeah, I could probably take it. Okay, okay, okay. So what is your, um, what is your take on the hobbits or the harfoots in the census because legally they can't say hobbits in the rings of power i think it's stupid i didn't like them i thought that was just dumb they should just call them hobbits i was like why are these why do you get to complicate things was this like the the back like story of how they became hobbits it's a hobbit i mean they they live in a burrow they 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 tend their gardens they drink and they smoke care what do you think about hobbits yes i didn't think the portrayal was Good. I didn't like the name change. Um, I am not familiar with the books, so I have only watched the films. Um, and then I could only get through maybe half an episode of The Rings of Power because of the writing. Yeah. Um, so I was really just like, this is horrible. But I will say, um, 
yeah, so I'm at a loss because I can only reference the other films. Um, but it just felt misplaced. Understandable. Understandable. I, I, I did ask of an opposing question to Dorbin's at work. So at the end of, of the Fellowship of the Rings, Gandalf falls. He falls, he's fighting the uh, Balrog, he falls, and then he comes back in the two towers. He comes back as Gandalf the White. Do you know why Gandalf the White had no recollection of being Gandalf the Grey? Is it because you go through like a wizard transformation? So that was an interesting question when you posed it. And it had me a bit stumped because I think I was focusing on, well, just the fact that I didn't think about why he really didn't have much memory of his, well, in the sense, I guess, his past life. But when I thought about it more and more and more, it, it just didn't make sense that Eru Iluvatar, the god of Tolkien's world, it just didn't sit well with me because I don't think that this particular god interrupts with his with his creation's ability to have free will. So when you said that when Gandalf came back as a white, he no longer had a choice to choose between good and evil, that he was set in the ways of good. And I that just didn't accord with me because I don't think that, because the only way he would come back is if Eru allowed it to come back, right? And again, he is one of those, I guess you could say celestial beings who essentially live on forever. They're sort of like the primordial beings of this world. So I, I don't think that when Gandalf comes back, he is stripped of his free will to choose evil if he wants. I think that that's still intact because it wouldn't make sense that that wouldn't be intact because that, that would just throw into question a lot of things within Tolkien's world where, where as in, if Gandalf doesn't have free will, why is it that only Gandalf doesn't have free will? Couldn't that also be applied to Melkor in this instance? Because he is the originator of evil in this world, right? Could he also claim that he didn't have free will in making the choices that he made to be who he is? And I also think that it also parallels with a lot of what Galadriel goes through when she's offered the One Ring by Frodo. She's tempted by having this power. Now, as we know, with Galadriel's history, she wanted to have her own kingdom herself to rule over. She's achieved that in a lot of ways. The One Ring would just elevate her beyond where she is currently. And because she had the choice to choose whether or not she wants to take that risk of putting on the One Ring, as we all know, anyone who puts that ring on, even Sauron himself, is corrupted by power. Because I think the One Ring represents, in a lot of ways, it probably represents a whole bunch of different things as well, but it represents this idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I don't think that it would have been any different for Galadriel if she would have put on the One Ring. So I think how her struggle with her need for the One Ring parallels with Gandalf and his now, I guess you're saying his lack of choice now since coming back, because he probably made a choice, obviously, to come back that he no longer has a choice of choosing between good and evil. He's now good. That's like a part of his contract and he can't break it. And I just don't think that that's the case. 
I think that he still has the ability to choose between good and evil, but much like with Galadriel, she chose not to possess the One Ring. And in choosing, now she can go off into the West, content and fulfilled with the fact that she is good and that she was able to tr gain victory over temptation and corruption. And I think the same thing still applies to Gandalf, because if it doesn't, again, it opens a can of worms <laughs> which I think is interesting, but I think it would destroy a lot of the continuity of the world that Tolkien created. Because a lot of characters can come up and, and, and claim to not have had a choice once they've decided to go down the route that they decided, that they decided to go down. Because again, that, that would also parallel with what happens in the real world, right? People claiming that, people can claim that they don't have free will in the decisions that they make. And I guess we can obviously understand how that might uh, <laughs> create some, um, let's just say dangerous precedents for how we deal with each other in society. If no one is responsible for the decisions that they make. And I think that Gandalf is still responsible when he comes back as Gandalf the White for the decisions that he makes. So I think he could still choose between good and evil. So my take is this. I feel Gandalf the Grey was able to either do good or evil. He kind of pushed the borders on a couple of situations where he could have done something bad. And it was kind of a little questionable of his decisions. When he fell and he fought the Belrog, I feel he was brought to a proportion where they were like, hey, you can be Gandalf the White. Gandalf the White is unable to do anything but good. He can't do evil. He can't even think about doing evil. So therefore... It wiped out the recollection of Gandalf the Grey because Gandalf the Grey had that ability and you can't reflect back on that as Gandalf the White because then he would not be Gandalf the Pure. Sarah? Um, I guess that makes sense. Um, back to Dorbin's point. So you think that becoming Gandalf the White and stripping him of his free will, if he was the White and had free will, would he still be able, would he still be tempted? Yes, I think if his free will is intact, which I believe it is, of course, I think he would still be tempted. But I think he would have clarity in the fact that using the One Ring or using any corrupting power is not the way to win this battle against evil. Because I think a lot of the struggles in this world is that people are trying to use the tools of evil to defeat evil. It's proven throughout the eons in this world that that does not work. That anyone who has ever gotten their hands on the ring have been corrupted by it. So I think at this point in Gandalf's journey, he he has come to terms that, or come to a realization that being tempted by this power isn't the way to win this war, to win this battle against evil. Because for me, I think of it in terms of someone who has an addiction to whatever particular thing it is, right? And they have dug down to the root cause of why they are addicted to said thing. So once they found the source to their addiction as to why they're tempted towards this addiction, then they're no longer going to be tempted by it because they're now aware of what leads them down the road to said temptation. They know the pitfalls, they know the traps, they know what triggers this need in them. And I think that, that at this point, Gandalf, much like Galadriel, understands in themselves what tempts them to yearn for this power. And I think, much like 
with everyone in the real world, when you understand the things that motivate you, when you have self-knowledge, you're able to make better decisions. You're able to, for lack of better terms or phrases, you're, you're able to understand your temptations and your desires and the things that you want and why you want them. And I think Galadriel and Gandalf the White understand this. That's why he's been elevated to this higher position because he understands the things that motivates him and not to get bogged down and, 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 and um, thrown off course by them. So I think that that's where his free will lies and that's why Gandalf the White would not make a decision to choose evil. I don't think he needs to be, I don't think his free will needs to be stripped away or, or because that would just make him a less interesting character. If now the only reason why he's making quote unquote good decisions is because he, I don't know, has a contract that says that he can't do it. You know what I mean? I think it's a much better thing when, in a much more interesting character arc, when the, the character is the one making the decision to be good and not being forced, coerced, or influenced. I mean, there can be some influence to be good, obviously, but at the end of the day, it still has to come down to choice. And whether that choice was Gandalf making it while he was the gray and his death, and then into his new life, or his, I guess, actual, or his final stage and final life, making the choice to, to be good, right? It has to be a choice. That's what it boils down to. Because if it isn't, it just becomes it just becomes less interesting, frankly. And it makes the story less interesting. Absolutely. Because, I mean, everyone deserves, I would assume, free will in this world, pure or not, right? That's like a basic like condition. Yeah. But when he confronts him, he does state, you are no longer fit to wear the white robes. Remember? He says to him, you are no longer fit to wear the white robes. Gandalf to Saruman, and so okay. so I mean, in my, my, my for me, his choice to do evil stripped him of being the white wizard. You know, he couldn't be the white wizard because even if he had free will, all right, his free will is I'm going to do bad. Okay, so why be stripped of the white robes? I mean, if it's free will, then he could be like, oh, you know what? Let him do it. I mean, he can still wear the white. But Gandalf clearly says to him, "You are no longer fit to wear the white robes." Yeah, but in that point, it's kind of evidence that Saruman was able to become a white wizard and still have the choice to be evil. So why wouldn't that still apply to Gandalf as well in this situation? You know what I mean? Because I'm still confused what that has to do with the free will aspect of the conversation. So if it's free will and they did bad, why would he be judged? Like, you know what I'm saying? All right, why would we strip of the white robes? So you did bad if it's free will and you're not going to be punished for your free will then you could still wear the white robes. But since he did bad, Gandalf becomes the white wizard and Saruman is stripped of his white robes. So you're saying that Gandalf has no free will because Saruman had free will and chose evil? Yeah. Basically, I think that Gandalf, I think Gandalf chose that path. Like when he fought the Belrog and he goes, I fought through fire, I fought through water, I fought through anything. I think he was given a choice. Like I think it was presented to him and said, look, we need you to go back, and we need you to be pure. We need you to be Gandalf the pure, Gandalf the white, Gandalf. And I think Gandalf, knowing that Saruman had turned evil and done what he did, made that choice. He was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back, and I'm going to be um, Gandalf the white. Right, but there's still choice in the matter here. Choice is still in the conversation. 
So you're saying Gandalf has free will? Had. I think he chose his path. I think it was presented to him, and they said, you know what? He said, yeah, I'm going to do it. Because he knew going back as Gandalf the White, it was the only way to help Frodo, help the, the human race, the elven race, the dwarven race. I think he sacrificed his free will to be Gandalf the White, to come back and say, all right, I, I will take this responsibility on myself. Because Gandalf is all through this, this, the thing, even as Gandalf the Grey said, he will make sacrifices for the right thing. And I think that's a sacrifice he made. Of course, but I think, I think in, if, and, and I could be um, misunderstanding. So if I am, I'm not trying to. But by making that choice, that is having that free will. Whereas if he had no choice and was just Gandalf the White because they saw that when they made a white wizard have free will, and Saruman chose evil. They were like, eh, can't do that. So am, am, I, am I getting it confused? No, no, no. I think that there is some validity in, in what you're saying. The thing, though, I'm confused about with Ben on in particular is, do you think, I mean, because, okay, I think that, of course, Gandalf wants the best for this world, obviously, right? Because he is one of the protagonists, right? So him making the choice to come back to help humanity, to help the world in general, is, yeah, it's a big choice and it's a big decision, but I don't think it's like this huge burden for him, you know what I mean? Because he, he really loves these people. So I think in him making the decision to come back, he still has agency in everything he does. And every decision he is making, he has a choice. I don't know if you think that because he's coming back as Gandalf the White, because he's made the decision to come back as Gandalf the White, that he no longer has a choice in choosing evil anymore. Or he's not susceptible to being evil anymore. Because he's made a deal with the Valar, Iluvatar, whatever the case may be, to come back and help humanity. I'm not sure if that's what the not the hang-up but the confusion in terms because Gandalf has to make a choice throughout this entire process there isn't a point in this thing where he doesn't have a choice that he can or cannot make if Gandalf is presented with the ring at towards the end of this struggle if he's presented with the ring towards the end of the struggle he still has a choice whether or not he wants to take the ring and use its power and allow it to corrupt him I think he still has that choice. He still has the capability to do those things. Because again, if he doesn't, the story is going to change dramatically for quite a lot of characters. And I just don't think that the god of this world again takes free will or hands out or dishes out free will randomly. I think it's a blanket thing for every being he's created. Like they all have a choice. Now whether they choose to do something good with it or not, it's up to them. I think that that is the case with Gandalf and every other character in this situation. No, I believe to the point where he said yes, he had free will. Once he said yes, then he had to come back as Gandalf the pure, Gandalf the white, Gandalf the, the can't be corrupted, has to do the good thing. And then that's where he, his free will kind of is taken. He's like, he comes back and he's like, all right, I have to be Gandalf the pure. Therefore, his memories of being Gandalf the Grey are taken from him because Gandalf the Grey had the ability to do good or evil. So I think that he's just on a, a, a path now of, of righteousness and he has to be to knock Sauron um, Sodomon down and and take that mantle right but this is all still a choice like he's still making a choice in all of this you know what i mean that's what, that's what it all boils down 
because I don't think there's a have to or has to do anything. Uh, because again, I don't think there's any proof in that fact to begin with. Like, I don't think there's any proof that he has to do this or he has to do that. Um, because there isn't a or else, or at least it's not present in the story from what I can tell. You know what I mean? I think that Gandalf has made a choice. He has obviously thought, I assume thought the things through, decided that this is the best course and this is the best chance for the, the for, for Middle Earth to survive. That he has to come back and he has, his mission isn't over. I think he's making a conscious choice to come back. Now with him having gaps in his memory, and things like that that could just be a fact that he is becoming more of his truer self and he's having a hard time you know that i think that's where the flexibility and sort of you know who is he truly what is his true identity what is his full self and how much of what he knows and what he doesn't know the trauma that he obviously went through when fighting the Belrog, because again, that's another Maya that he's fight, fighting, right? So I don't know, it could all just boil down to a fact that he has head trauma, you know what I mean? And he's still sort of regaining his memories as time goes on, right? Because again, he's coming back and heading right into battle again. So I assume that it's just taking time for certain things to flow back to him in his mind regaining the memories that he lost right i think that that is probably what leads some kind of credence to the fact that oh he may not be the same person he was before which again i don't think gandalf the gray and gandalf the white are two completely different people right i think it's the same being who has as characters should transform and evolve throughout the story and become better fleshed out and become more clear in their choices and more and more determined in their goals and i think that at this point gandalf has had clarity and i think his clarity of mind his clarity of choice comes to the fact that he is no longer going to be as corruptible as he may have been before as gandalf the gray as gandalf the gray he traveled the world he's met different people and he's seen the rise of of sauron and of evil in the world right so having traveled and journeyed for thousands of years, I mean, that could wear down on a person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even Gandalf in his gray stage, right? So I assume that throughout that weariness of travel and that re weariness being in Middle Earth and dealing with all the things that he's dealt, he's probably more susceptible to corruption. But once he's been tested, which is what I think his battle with the Belrog was, and the choice to stay back and stand back and sacrifice himself for the fellowship is that he is, or he has made a choice that he is going to stand as a bulwark against evil, however it comes. I mean, because it was a brave thing for him to, you know, the you shall not pass thing with the Belrog, right? He's making a firm stance against evil and he's willing to risk his own existence for it. And for him to be able to do that, it has to be a choice because it becomes incredibly uninteresting if any of this is anything else but his choice. Now, again, we understand the meta of it. You know, he is a character being written by, by an author who is uh, created by a god within his world. We get all of that, right? But again, still, he's he has a choice as a character, right? If he doesn't have a choice, everything in the story starts to crumble. So my point about him being the um, the pure, the Gandalf, the pure Gandalf, like when they're in the Rohirrim and he's facing uh, Worm, 
worm, uh, worm tongue, and they have the power over uh, Theoden. When he throws off his gray robes and reveals himself as the white, you can see the glow come off him, and it's a different type of power that the Gandalf had from before, where it's more pure. The power is more pure, and like Worm Tongue and the possessed Theoden both like are like, oh my god, and like they just like cringe back at this new revealing of this pure Gandalf. I have a question because I did not read the book, so if this is in the books, um, please help me. Um, if Gandalf fall, he battles, he falls. Was there ever a possibility of him not being able to come back? if he was not Gandalf the White, or is this like the final form of every wizard? I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think that because the wizards are essentially Maiars, which are sort of like the celestial beings, I think that they are sort of eternal. They definitely have long life, and they could be sort of reincarnated or, you know, come back to life and whatnot. But I think, yeah, you know, Gandalf definitely had a choice of either coming back or staying in his primal form if he wanted to. So I think that that was definitely still a choice that he definitely could have made. No, that that makes sense. Like, I agree. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm saying that he made that choice, but then after that, the choice was taken from him as, like, further further on, where he has to be Gandalf the White, Gandalf the Pure, Gandalf, you know, the representative of the White Wizards. (laughs) <laughs> Look, I get it, man. I, I totally get it. But I think it still boils down to choice. But when you say that he has to, he made a choice. Because I think that that is a choice. No, I just feel he has a path that he has to walk. Like, he has to walk the white wizard path. Whereas before, Gandalf had more flexibility. Gandalf the Grey had more, like, he could sway either way. He did some stuff that was questionable. He did th- This Gandalf can't do that. Yeah, he's more focused on good and pure and and leading the right life you know like you know like like a vegan you know like vegans not going to eat meat because it'll corrupt them and in, in their in their system gandalf now his system is pure his system is so he can't do the things gandalf the gray could i don't know man i feel like i want to disagree with you on that fact but i think we might be just going around and around and around in circles with the ideas <laughs> <laughs> But no, I, I do think it's an interesting point. It's an interesting theory, much like all the theories of Gandalf taking the ring, being corrupted by it, and all the things that would lead from that. But yeah, I, I definitely do think it's an interesting concept, an interesting theory. Do you think he would go crazy if he actually... Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I definitely think he would go crazy. He would go mad with power if he got hold of that ring. So I do have some points that I want to touch on here because... Uh... I mean, I think we talked about most of them, but when it comes to the dialogue, oh my god, is it dreadful. The dialogue is, it feels like, first of all, it felt like a human didn't write. I was like, this is not how people talk, even in fantasy. I was so disengaged. Yeah. I totally agree on that. And I think one of the <laughs> horrendous dialogues in this show comes from, and this is just one of many, <laughs> so bear with me. So this dialogue comes from Galadriel's brother. This is after Galadriel was being bullied by her peers and whatnot, and her brother takes her aside, and they start having this conversation that just leads into weirdness for some reason. So the essential point that he 
says or dialogue that he says to her is, do you know why a ship floats and a stone doesn't? And then he proceeds to say, the stone only sees downward at the abyss, but the ship resists it because it's looking upward towards the light. And we cannot know until we touch the darkness. So <laughs> essentially this guy is having a conversation with this young elf, his baby sister, about touching the darkness. Like <laughs> what? <laughs> what kind of conversation are you having with this with with your little sister here about potentially touching the darkness? I mean you do know that the darkness is a corrupting factor, right? So why are you essentially telling her that she has to experience and, and sort of, I don't know, enmesh yourself with evil in order to to be able to touch the light and the goodness? I don't get what, what any of that means. Clearly it was trying to sound way more deep and sophisticated than it actually was. And this point also just frustrated me to the core because this point sort of radiates throughout the entire series where Galadriel essentially is, whether it's unwittingly or willingly, is putting into motion horrific events that lead to the death and the destruction of so many people in this world. It's kind of ridiculous because it, it all goes back to how she kept pressuring Halbrand to go to the Southlands and how her blind and fairly psychotic pursuit of Sauron leads her to forcing Halbrand to go to the Southlands and create Mordor. He essentially destroys an entire region. So her brother telling her to touch the darkness has had a detrimental effect on her. Dislocation and trauma of every single culture, race, species in the world of Middle-earth. She's responsible for all of that at this point in the story that they're trying to tell with Amazon. And I think that that idea alone is enough for this series to go down as the most abysmal adaptation of any piece of fiction ever created. And can we talk about something else? Why, why, why on earth do all the elves look like they have gotten their hair cut at Supercuts? I, I do want to talk about the wigs of this show because I was like, you have Amazon money and you have these horribly store-bought wigs. I hated it. Where was the budget? I don't know where the budget got. And we'll talk about the budget too in a little bit. Like, why do they all, for the most part, again, there's the exceptions with Galadriel and I believe Gilgalad, but every other elf essentially look like they got their hair cut as supercuts. Like, why? They look so generic like the rest of the series. Okay, so let me just run through a few points here. So in terms of the music in the show, it was hot garbage, very generic, very forgettable, very uninteresting. I don't know who did the music. <sighs> Clearly they didn't give a crap. And I want to say compared to the original trilogy, it was a, it felt like a whiplash because that soundtrack was so beautiful. It was so enthralling. And I felt, I felt like it really added to everything. And I gotta tell you, listen, the acting in this show was horrible. 
It's not an exaggeration. It was a bunch of phoning things in, overdoing things. It seems like most of the actors couldn't emote. That acting was bad. And the excessive rolling of the R's. Numenor Galadriel. What are you doing, guys? Stop with the rolling of the R's. It's so extra. Why? It's so annoying. And don't even get me started on the action scenes. The action scenes didn't contribute to the story. You weren't emotionally invested in any of these characters and, and, and whether or not they would survive, get injured, or whatever the case may be. So the action scenes, the fights and everything like that, they were just all meaningless. The wigs were bad. The costuming was bad. The sets were uninspired. I did not care for it. I don't know. I was not a fan. What, where did the money go? I do not know where the budget went. Maybe you guys know, but I, 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 I just don't know where any of it has gone. In their pockets. Where do, you, <laughs> where do you think the money went? I mean, come on now. Yeah, like the, uh, oh, look, we paid for this. You didn't pay for that. You just have a receipt for that. Listen, they pocketed that stuff. I mean, I, I, I don't know if they did. I, I'm just joking. So, like, I don't want you guys coming and suing me <laughs> saying, saying, he said I stole the money. I don't know what you did with the money. But they are right. It clearly wasn't done on the production. I mean, I'm not saying it was a good production. I'm saying it, it I'm hoping I took it as, a lead to be a better season two. That's how I. That's how I looked at it. I was like, all right, I, and I'm hoping. I'm hoping it's a good season two. Oh Ben, you're such an optimist. I love it. <laughs> you're so generous, Ben. You're so so generous. Okay, so there is another thing I wanted to talk about, and this again pertains to a lot of the dialogue that they try to interject into the series, and one of those dialogues. There's a couple too, but this one I think kind of stood out because I understood very clearly as soon as one of the characters said it, I knew exactly what they were trying to do when it came to the dialogues that sort of tried to come off as deep and interesting and always fell flat. Now the line in particular I'm talking about here is, the sea is always right. What in the, what does that mean? I'm so confused. What do you mean the C is always right? The C A isn't a person. It's it it doesn't have morality. It can't distinguish, at least I'm assuming here, can't distinguish between right and wrong. It's just the force of nature. So when you say the C is always right, I'm I'm a little concerned for you when you say that as a character. What do you mean the C is always right? And I knew as soon as that line came out of that character's mouth, I knew exactly what they were trying to do. It goes back to Game of Thrones. They're trying so hard, much like a lot of the series that have come out since Game of Thrones, since its finale and everything like that. Practically every studio is trying to find their Game of Thrones, trying to find their cultural phenomenon, right? So with this line, the C is always right. I knew what they were trying to do was trying to get these memorable moments or memorable dialogues that people would say out in public and say with their friends and sort of interact with each other and be all like, oh, did you know, or did you hear this awesome sounding quote that they said in the last episode of Rings of Power? The sea is always right. They're trying so hard to be like Game of Thrones. Like, for instance, winter is coming. You know nothing, Jon Snow. A lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions of a sheep. Any man who must say, I am king, is no true king. A Lannister always pays his debt. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. It is beautiful beneath the sea. But if you stay too long, you'll drown. There is only one God. 
and his name is death. And there is only one thing we say to death, not today. Or Valamagulis. But those had basis in the story. It wasn't just thrown. Like you can you can say so hear it because it was repeated before. It made sense. And then all those callbacks that they did made it it was a more cohesive story. It wasn't like a it was like an actual human wrote it. Yeah, no, I, I, I see it. I see what you're saying. Um, uh, like I said, this a lot of the stuff in this show I didn't like. Like when they're drilling for the mithril, when they're, and then they're, they're going down to the mithril, and then lo and behold, what do they come across? The Belrog. And no, that's not right. No, it was not. That's, that's not when they found the Belrog. That's later on, because Gimli had been to the, um, the, 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 the halls. He's been there before. So the Belrog can't be discovered right now. It happens way later. They dig deeper after the Mithril, so that kind of pissed me off. I was like, what? No, you don't find a Belrog at this point in time. It's after the Mithril's already been, because Mithril, like, is all through, like, Middle-earth. Like, everybody has the Mithril, and so you've clearly mined it for a long time. So if you find a Belrog now, you ain't mining that Mithril. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So on the point of Mithril, let me ask you guys this. Did we need an origin for Mithril? Was anybody asking for an origin of Mithril? Did we need, did we yearn to know how this rock was made? Like, was that a crucial part of this story that we needed to know? That we needed to take up crucial screen time for? Like, did we need to know that an elf and a Belrog were fighting on some mountain next to a tree, their good and evil clashed, and then it went down into the tree and boom, we have Mithril. It's like, A, that's stupid. B, ain't nobody asked for that, okay? Nobody cares, nobody's interested in that. I'm just saying, I don't think we needed that much screen time and that much time taking away in this story to tell an unnecessary origin. And if it, if it had to be necessary for the stupid reason that the elves need Mithril in order to heal themselves so that they don't die, I don't, listen, <laughs> I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of that ri ridiculousness. Whatever. It's stupid. Well, let's just classify it as that and leave it alone because it's going to give me a headache. I mean, again, it's like, did we need an origin? It's like this show tried to ha create so many origins for so many things. And the other abysmal origin that it tried to create was the origin for Mordor. Who here wanted to see <laughs> Mordor be presented to us? By a dude sticking a sword into a stone, having a bunch of water flow into a volcano, have that volcano explode, it go towards all of the Numenorians and elves, and most of them didn't die from that. What? That's crazy. You take an entire, what is it, pyroclastic storm towards you and most of you survive? Okay. And what do we see towards the end of the culmination of that? We see a little title screen pop up on the screen. It shows the Southlands. And then that title screen gets burned away and turned into Mordor. Oh my god. Mine blown. You guys blew up an area overnight. You switched the title on the screen. And oh my god, it's not Mordor. Such brilliant, brilliant storytelling i'm telling you brilliant no i agree i mean that was i was looking at that too going what no what are you talking about that's just stupid i mean all of a sudden now it's mordor like i was saying that's when the people remember the people turned to him as as a leader again and i'm like i'm like 
all through this, they're like, no, it's not going to happen. We're going to stay true to ourselves. We won't let him corrupt us again. And like two seconds into it, they're like, we're corrupted. I was like, what, what the hell just happened? I was like, what happened to like, we're not going to do this. And like, it took less than a second. Like, like literally it was like my grandkids. I'd be like, you know, do this. No, I'll give you a candy bar. Okay. That's, that's, how, <laughs> that's how quickly they turned. I was like, holy crap. I mean, talk about no self-esteem. I mean, it was, that was awful. All right, so I don't want to do too much more, but there are a couple more points that I had. So another thing that I think was a a sort of ripoff of Game of Thrones was the use of the maps as transitions between scenes. Like they would constantly go back to doing that same thing. And I think that that mirrored a lot of well, I guess what the opening scenes with Game of Thrones were was sure to show you going through the maps of the different regions that the show was focusing on, right? And I think that this rings the power. Essentially tried to use the map transitions to transition between scenes, which just became very dull and boring and a very lazy use of transitions. This is like if you're trying to take inspiration or ideas from other properties, at least try and make that an original thing. Add something new to it. Transform it into something that's much more interesting instead of this lazy usage of it. Because again, Jeff Bezos was constantly saying how he wanted his own Game of Thrones for, for Amazon Prime Video. And you can tell by not taking the proper lessons from how HBO utilized Game of Thrones to make it the most, one of the most successful shows ever created. I have a question about that. Um, because at the same time that this was coming out, and I could be wrong, <clears throat> but wasn't the other fantasy series, The Wheels of Time, coming out as well? So do you think that Amazon split their resources into two fantasy series, hoping that one would kick off? Now, I've never seen the wheel of time or read the books so i'm not 100 percent sure i don't think that they i mean amazon has a has a ton of money but i think that they poured more resources into rings of power because of the potential upside with a lord of the rings property you know what i mean because Obviously, Wheel of Time isn't as known of a property as the Lord of the Rings. It doesn't have the mass appeal. Even something like Game of Thrones didn't have a mass appeal until the show was successful, right? The Lord of the Rings had a large fan base prior to the movies coming out. And when the movies came out, it just threw it into the stratosphere, right? So I, I don't... I don't know if they split their vast resources amongst the two. I think definitely a bunch of the resources went into making sure that the Rings of Power was a massive success. Because again, they proved that just pouring a large amount of resources into a particular project doesn't mean it's going to turn out to be a good one. So let me ask you this. When Matrix came out, remember the Matrix, when it came out, after that, every single movie had some form of Matrix move in it. The Three Musketeers had Matrix moves in it. So do you feel that since the Game of Thrones was such a success, that these two series feel that they have to mimic this type of, of artwork? Well, yes. In short, putting aside the, the creativity aspect 
of making a show they want the numbers they want the they want the accolades of having a number of awards attached to the show they love to have the high view count so yes in terms of that definitely they the influence that game of thrones had on television making is is vast because every show essentially wants to have that kind of cultural impact and they all want that cultural impact without having to do much of the work that the series did and the the production house of hbo did right because hbo for a while now has kind of mastered the art of television of making television everything from the sopranos the wire rome I mean, they just kept having hits after hits after hits, and it's it's taken them a while to be this good at making television. Now, other production houses think that they can just jump into the fray, right, with their streaming services and just start popping out bangers and hits after hits, right? Just by having a streaming service, they think that if they can just pump out as much content as possible, then they can have their own Game of Thrones without realizing the actual work that takes to make a hit show. Which again, even Game of Thrones failed to do at with its final three, I would say three seasons. Because I think the first four seasons of Game of Thrones were peak Game of Thrones, were the best. Everything after that just sort of went downhill when characters started to lose the essence of who they are. Essentially what happened with Game of Thrones is that George R.R. R. Martin's story wasn't complete. So they didn't have much to go off of after season four. So now the creators of the show had to, based off of probably George's note, notes, come up with something that was close to what his vision of how he was going to end the books, and things just started to fall apart, right? Because we can't argue the influence that Game of Thrones have had on television making. Because the first part of Game of Thrones, like I would say season one through season four, the production value wasn't as good, or they didn't have as much resources, in a sense, in the beginning as they did in the last three seasons because of the popularity and the story consistency and just the overall better storytelling that happened in the first four seasons, right? So I think the trend generally is that in a highly successful series, there's usually a small group of people who have a clear vision and a clear idea of a story that they want to tell. And using the limited budget that they have, they create a very compelling story with that limited budget, right? Which forces them to come up with creative ideas and focus on making a good show with the resources that they have, right? So once it becomes successful, and this doesn't happen to every single show that is successful and has those limited resources, but it's a general trend that once the show goes on for a while, and it's a popular show, the quality of the story generally goes down as the production value goes up because they now have more resources because the show is popular, right? If that makes sense. So the same situation happened with Game of Thrones. It started off with, I'm not gonna say with a meager budget, but definitely not the high budget that it had towards the, the latter part of the series, right? They had the focus on really telling the story and really utilizing their limited resources wisely. So they told a compelling story, a tighter story. And then once things got popular, once they got more resources, you notice how the story got less consistent, the characters changed, and everything just started to fall apart. And you can't just like, and I think too, a lot of it comes with the success of shows. You get a lot of 
production notes and you get a lot of the corporations being like, okay, well, you just have to build on the success. And then I think that's where stories lose it. I would say, especially with Game of Thrones, I like the productions of season one and season two better because when we got into the last seasons, everything was so dark. I couldn't see a singular thing that was happening. And I was like, if you have all this money, learn how to light your film, like light your scenes. It's not that hard. Yeah, and I think a lot of that had to do with the ego of certain directors with the show and assuming that their sort of artistic takes are just something that the audience members are just not either ready for or just don't understand. Because I remember one of the directors was just like, you know, we light it dark because, you know, it's dark and you wouldn't really, you wouldn't really be seeing what was going on in a battle that was happening at night. And it's just like, it's like, I mean, have you not seen the Battle of Helm's Deep? That shot was done at night. And you can see the things that are happening in that battle at night, right? You know, this is a fantasy show. Just because you're trying to make it be realistic doesn't mean that we as the audience members viewing this, because again, it is a visual medium, we need to be able to see what's going on. So sort of going after the fans of the show who are like, hey, I can't see much of what's going on in the show. Because again, it kind of feels like a ripoff. It feels like you're trying to, with all this budget that you have now, like you're, you're not trying hard enough to, to make sure that we're engaged in the story. When it came to certain creatives on the show being like, well, you know, if you, if you don't like this style of filmmaking, it's just because you're not sophisticated enough to see it. It's just like, no, bro, turn up the brightness on the thing. You know what I mean? Show us what's going on. And then look at House of the Dragon. Very well lit. And people liked it. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. House of the Dragon proved that you can, um, you know, you can have your scenes in this, in this darkness and you can still see things. You can still see the action of the scene because, again, it is a visual medium. So we need to see what's going on. Now, I did have some other points before we wrap up. So these had to do particularly with Galadriel. Because I think <laughs> she was among the, the characters that were ruined. I think one of the most ruined characters in the show. So the point that I wanted to touch on was in episode 5. Where they sort of put Galadriel in this position. Which changes so many things about her. Her motivations. The world of Middle-earth. So much that I think it's just inexcusable. Because what they try and do is... They put Galadriel in the position of being responsible for Halbrand going to the Southlands to become Sauron and create Mordor. Now just let that sink in. Galadriel is now responsible because she pressured him constantly while they were in Numenor for him to go back to the Southlands. The implications of that is it's hard to, to put into words how frustrating that is. Because you're essentially saying... and not in a compelling way either. You're essentially saying that she's responsible for the death and destruction of a whole swath of peoples because of her selfish desire to have him go to the Southlands to fulfill her goals and her needs. Once you set that precedent, huh, everything about this character changes dramatically. And you have to ask the question, how many hands did this script pass to where all these people were like, okay, this is a good and a compelling story to make. Like, how does that happen? From the script writer to the director, the producer, the actors, 
like all these people, the script has passed hands and all of them, what, think that this is okay? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think that this person was probably asleep, frankly, because it's like, how do you justify? How do you justify Galadriel is essentially the, the, the villain of this story. She is the main architect, the fall of the Southlands and probably the fall of every other region of Middle-earth. But what do you think about that, Ben? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, maybe they're going off the premise, like, you cause your own problems. I mean, a lot of people think that, you know, you cause your own problems. Like, sometimes, like, you're in a relationship that you and the guy clearly don't work out, but you keep on trying to force the relationship to work, but it can't work. And then eventually it blows up in your face. You know, you're trying to stay at a job that's not good for you, and you keep on staying thinking things are going to change, things are going to change. It never changes, and it blows up in your face. So I think maybe that's what they were trying to do with her. Like, she was in the situation where, like, she was so determined to right the wrongs that she caused the wrong, if that makes any sense. My God, Ben, you're giving these guys a lot, a lot, a lot of leeway here. It's like your explanation of that makes more sense than what we saw on the screen. They, they, didn't, they didn't take that approach, or at least they didn't, that wasn't conveyed in the show that we saw. Listen, if they wanted to go down that path, fine, but make it compelling, make it interesting, make it align with the character that we know instead of creating this just disjointed generic story because i mean they didn't even do the bare minimum thing of how did this when this piece of information came to her how did it affect her it just seemed like it didn't like it was like okay now i'm moving on to another thing you know what i mean there was no emotional impact or any kind of facing of her own demons that she caused all of this tragedy to happen like there was no moment where we saw any empathy in her because she is directly responsible no matter how you shake it no matter how you try and rationalize it she is responsible for that yeah but that could be on the point of like she was so determined to, to hunt them down anyway that she didn't care that she caused it she was going to get him no matter what and even if she did cause it oh well he still has to pay for her brother's death i think they focus too much on the fact that she's so overwhelmed by her brother's death that it totally corrupts her whole her whole character. And that's not Gladriel. I, I, I was watching it going, this is not who this person is. This person is not that way. She would not do this. I mean, yes, she would want vengeance, but she wouldn't seek it to the point that this person seeks to actually destroy the world by making this person the evil that she always thought was going to be there. She created him because of her own like ways she's like oh you're going to be the person in the south you're going to be the person in the south so she forces him to take the mantle of, of of sauron and i think that it was like i said before because people cause their own dooms and i think that's what they were trying to emphasize and beat into us that you know if it wasn't for her being like this this would not happen but if that was the case it would have been reflected into the movies and they would have said something like that then like oh you know had she not done this you know, this wouldn't happen. And they never mentioned that at all. They never mentioned that she even had a brother in the movies or that she had any kind of connection to, to, uh, to Sauron. None of that. She just calls him the evil. That's all she says. She, she doesn't say that, you know, oh, I know you or that. She just calls him the evil. Right. Yeah. I mean, I totally get that. Because again, it's like this particular show gives us the opportunity to focus on Galadriel 
more than we did on the original series. So there's a lot of characters and a lot of situations that could be introduced, like all of her other brothers, her husband, her daughter, where are they? Where are they in this story? <laughs> but I think that they just dropped the ball in all of this on the potential story that could have been told, the flushing out of this character, this fantastic character that they tried to ruin in the show. And I say tried because I don't think they succeeded in ruining the original character. I just personally think that this is some dimension we've entered into where someone decided I'm going to throw a bunch of money at, at creating a half-baked distorted version of Tolkien's work kind of thing. But that aside, there were some other points that I wanted to touch on when it comes to the dialogue in particular. And this one focuses primarily around a statement that Galadriel says to, I believe the character is Bronwyn's son. I forget his name. This is one of the characters in the Southlands where she's talking to him uh, because they're together for some reason. I don't remember what the reason is, but this is after the volcano has exploded and everyone is covered in Cheeto dust and Galadriel's walking and walking with him trying to find his mother and he's feeling down and feeling sad about this and it feels like Galadriel essentially recycles a little bit of what her brother told her about touching the darkness and whatever. She essentially says to him, because he's again thinking and worried about his mother and everything like that, and he's like, you know, obviously scared and confused and in his own head about everything and just worried. And she says, what cannot be known hollows the mind. Fill it not with guesswork. And it's like, hey, how does that help this kid who is traumatized at this point after facing all the things that he did with the orcs attacking him and his, vi his village and all that kind of stuff, seeing people die, having the sword that is coming to life when it's attached to his blood, battling and almost dying from this orc attack. It's just like, is that your, is that your way of calming this kid down? From the saying is, 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 is this dialogue that's supposed to sound all interesting and deep? Fill your head not with guesswork? It's like, that doesn't help me, Galadriel. <laughs> it doesn't help me. <laughs> and I think another point that's coming to mind now is the point that Galadriel, which again, I don't know, perhaps you guys can help me out with figuring out what the heck this means. So Galadriel is with Halbrand, and this is when they're in the Southlands, I believe. They're having an argument where we're sort of getting more of an insight into how horrible Galadriel is. She says this line, which is just like, again, I just don't get it. But she says this to Halbrand, one cannot satisfy thirst by drinking seawater. I don't know what the hell that means, and I don't know what the fascination is with these guys and seawater. So if you guys can help me explain this, perhaps it will alleviate some things for me. So I can only assume that seawater <laughs> is salty, and therefore it would not quench your thirst, as in real water would quench your thirst. Therefore, you're seeking a, a, a false resolution to your, to your problem. So you're, you're thirsty. And you want something, so you drink seawater, but seawater is a false, it's water, but it's not the water you need to quench yourself, whereas you need regular water. So maybe she means, like, you can't quench your own inner desires or inner fears by, by doing the things you do unless you touch the darkness and understand the darkness. And I would say, and because I understand where you're coming from, but then that is contradictory to the, the show's own line being the sea is always right. So wouldn't seawater then quench your thirst and revive you if it's always the correct thing but seawater is not meant to be drank it's just meant to guide it's meant to to be on the ocean and and, <laughs> and, 
and and have and harbor fish and and you know and waves and you know and like it knows when the tide comes in, but it's never meant to be drank unless you boil it. Well, actually, you could boil it on a ship. Like I forget the name of that movie, but they took the water, they boiled it, and they they got the pure water and got rid of the salt, and then so you can technically drink it if you if you purify it. So. Uh, I mean, good. that seems like a lot of work, but I so does this. So does this show. <laughs> <laughs> this show's dialogue had a lot of work. <laughs> you needed a lot of work. I mean, I'm just saying. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what they were getting at. I mean, I mean, it makes sense if you look at it in that aspect. But then, like you said, they, that they weren't pointing towards that aspect. So I don't know what they were trying to get at. But like you said, they were just trying to rip off Game of Thrones, and they thought they'd throw some kind of cliche thing in there, and. Well, it didn't work. And I just have a question because I did not obviously finish the show. I could not do it. But I felt like there was a lot of, it feels like there's a lot of reliance and heavy symbolism on the sea and on the ocean. And when I watched the original trilogy, I did not get that at all. So where does this come from? So the race of mankind came from across the sea to the Middle Earth. Okay. So their leaders like the king and all this stuff came from overseas. Like the, there were a bunch of tribes before they showed up. And then they brought stability like and, and order and a king and justice. So that's why like they were sea-bearing people, like uh, technically, technically. So I think this symbolism of the sea and all this kind of stuff comes from the Numenorians. Now the Numenorians are, I think, classified as different from the human race because they're sort of what you would i guess consider the peak of human condition and all that kind of stuff because they live much longer than normal humans do are generally stronger they're much more intelligent and things like that so the numenorians are a seafaring nation because they live on an island and their primary culture runs on sea trade and, and things like that. So I think the, the symbolism for, you know, the sea and all that kind of stuff comes primarily from them and because of them. A lot of the cultures in the real world during sort of the medieval times in the, you know, like the Mediterranean was based off of a number of different things. But I think one of the things that I can remember is Atlantis. So it's essentially like this island civilization that was so advanced so very long ago. Again, <laughs> the show did a poor job of illustrating that point. Yeah, I think they were just trying to make her sound really, really intelligent, deep. Like I said, they didn't do a good job of her character. I really, like, I was watching it going, okay. Like I said, I really liked, I was more interested in the elven ranger than I was Gladiator. Because I was like, all right, well, you you kind of killed her for me. They, like, literally killed her for me. Because, like, she was one of my favorite characters in the, in the trilogies. I was always enthralled by her. Even in the books, I was like, wow, this person's awesome. She's badass. She, like, and she has all this power and people, like, like respect her. And in this, I lost all respect for her. I was like, yeah, I have no respect for her now. Like, they killed that character for me because of how they made her. They made her, like, whiny, you know, w you know, vengeful, borderline evil at some points, uh, you know, unmerciful, you know, uncaring. You know, it, I was just like, no, this, that's not this person. This person is caring. This person, you know, cares about Frodo. And she says, well, they show a whole thing about her sitting there reflecting on how this is going to totally destroy Frodo and his life forever. He's never going to be the same. The world is never going to be the same. And she cries about how the world is never going to be the same after these moments. 
and this person that they portrayed in this show would not be like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with a lot of those points. And I think another one of these big oversights, where are Galadriel's amazing abilities? You know, the kind of things that made her stood out from everyone else. It's like she's able to read the intentions and the minds of individuals around her and is able to, you know, gather pretty accurately the intentions behind someone's actions and someone's being. Because if this was the original Galadriel, she would have seen Halbrand for who he is a mile away. A lot of her issues would have been solved and resolved in the situation they put her in the Rings of Power if she had those abilities. But none of those abilities were anywhere to be found. Which again, I think added to how generic everything was down to every character and every intention. It's like, you, you, again, you purchased this entire series for the amount that you did, and you're not utilizing the characters as they are. If they're not going to be who they are, then frankly, you just wasted your money on them. But there was another point that I wanted to touch on, and this goes onto the level or the amount of budget that was used for producing this particular production. So let me find the numbers here. And if you guys like, I think what we can do to sort of round this out is rank all of the adaptations of Tolkien to see which ones are the best and which ones are the worst. Okay, so I'm going to be going through these chronologically. So the first one on the list is The Lord of the Rings, the 1978 Manimation version, which was produced for $8 million. Just a quick question. Are you inflating these numbers for today's standards to match Ring of Power? No. I did some calculations for the original trilogy because... They were personally the ones that I was the most interested about. So I kind of have those in my head as to the amounts adjusting for inflation. For the ones I would be listing here, it's just what the value was at the time to produce them. So the next one on the list is the first installment of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Now this was produced for $93 million dollars. The second installment in the trilogy was obviously the Twin Towers, which was produced for $94 million. The third installment, The Return of the King, was also produced for $94 million. Now again, we have to take into context that these were all being filmed at the same time, like consecutively, um, because there wasn't like a huge break between the release of each of these films, right? So the totality of the trilogy was $281 million. Now I want you guys to keep that number in mind. That's how much it took to produce the three movies in the trilogy, the OG trilogy. It took them $281 million to produce those three classics, right? Now if we want to go back in inflation numbers for these, the numbers I was getting was from anywhere between about one hundred and fifty to 60 million dollars for each of those films so that's what it would sort of be in today's numbers for those films okay so all right now let's move on to the not so interesting hobbit movies so the amounts that i got for the first hobbit film the unexpected journey i believe i couldn't get a specific number on these films but i got the range 
of cost for the first film. So it was between 150 million to 180 million dollars to produce the first Hobbit film. Now the second Hobbit film, which was from was was produced from 150 million to 191 million dollars. The third Hobbit film and the conclusion to the trilogy was produced from anywhere between 150 to 250 million dollars. So the total for the Hobbit trilogy came to 745 million dollars to produce that. Now that includes everything in terms of marketing and everything like that. That was the total cost for that production cost. So now let's move on to the Rings of Power season one. I want you to remember the amount that it took to make the original trilogy, which was $281 million, which you can probably say roughly today, in today's money, it's probably closer to $300 million to make the totality of that series. Now for the Rings of Power, the first season, it cost nearly a billion dollars to make this show. Now to break it down, the cost for the rights alone was $250 million. Now for the production of the Rings of Power, the rough budget for that was $465 million. And I didn't get any specific numbers on marketing, but generally marketing for something like this was probably half of the budget or maybe a little bit more than half. I'm gonna be a little bit more conservative about it and say that it was probably around 150, maybe 160 million to make, but it was probably definitely more. Now again, I wanna do another comparison when it comes to the House of the Dragon season one and how much it was produced for. Okay, so for the House of the Dragon season one, which was released around the same time as the Rings of Power, they're both in the fantasy world they're both based on medieval societies, right? So the similarities are there. The cost to produce the whole season of the House of the Dragon was under $200 million, less than the cost of the rights to purchase the Lord of the Rings. That's how much it cost to produce the totality of House of the Dragon. And roughly the breakdown in terms of the cost for each episode for House of the Dragon was anywhere between 15, well, sorry, was anywhere between six to $15 million per episode. And I would say the marketing budget was roughly around $100 million. Now think about that. Under $200 million for the whole season for that show, which roughly had the same kind of production needs as the Rings of Power would. And they were able to produce that show at a higher quality in terms of storytelling, in terms of visual storytelling, in terms of character development, they were able to tell that story at a much cheaper cost, which goes back to the point that I made before about how when you have a small group of ragtag people who are invested in telling a story consistently and clearly, who have a, I wouldn't say limited budget because again, HBO has backing from Warner, but they have a smaller budget to work with and they're able to produce something that's far better than something like the Rings of Power that had this ballooning, ballooning budget, nearing a billion dollars. I'd say it's probably a billion or more at this point. But they had this higher budget and their product at the end of the day was worse off. It's like 
where did the money go for Amazon? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. I understand buying the rights because it's wildly popular. That is the only thing that makes sense. But then you still have, what, $600 million? Where is it? Because it's not in anything that we talked about. Yeah, yeah, clearly that was, yeah, the numbers are just incredible. I'm like, wow, that's that's ridiculous. The production level, you can tell, is not the same. I mean, the show's production level is just terrible. I was like, oh, my God. I, I mean, like I said, I was hoping that it's a build-up to a great season two. I have high expectations. Will I be let down? I wouldn't be the first time I've been let down. I mean, let's face it. I had to watch Back to the Future 2, so, I, I mean, that was terrible, but we'll go there. I mean, so, I mean, I've been let down by movies before and shows before, so, yeah, hopefully season two is better. I do think that the first trilogy is better than The Hobbit. I do, I, even though I don't like The Fellowship of the Rings too much, I do think all in all it's better than the hobbit series i mean i like the hobbit series for certain parts of this hobbit series like during the battle of five armies when thorin comes out of the, the keep i think that's an incredible like visual i think that's a great part of the movie you know to the king to the king and they all go running to fight for uh, the king i thought that was great another part of a movie i like is the return of the king where aragon runs in and he says you know Gondor calls for aid, and he's like, you know, and they all look, and he's like, and Rohirrim will answer. I like there's certain parts of each movie that I really truly like took to heart, but again, I do believe that the first series was better than all of these combined. Oh, okay. I didn't think that we were gonna agree on that, <laughs> but good, 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 good. So what I want to do to sort of wrap this up is to rank each individual movie from best to worst and this is like not ranking trilogy to trilogy so like each individual movie within the trilogies themselves including also the the animated version and of course the rings of power series to kind of see what we what our ranking of the episodes are in the series um of course excluding house of the dragon in this so we're just focusing on lord of the rings properties so just sort of like how you would rank each movie Okay, if I could rank it, I would go probably Two Towers, then I'd go Return of the King, then I'd go Battle of Five Armies, Desolation of Smog, Hobbit, then I'd go Fellowship, and then I'd go the series, because the series is probably not anywhere close to those guys. And then it would have to be the animated Hobbit and the animated uh, Return of the King from the 70s. And I hated the, the Lord of the Rings movie, so I'm not even putting that in there, because that was awful. Okay, okay, okay. I was expecting the Rings of Power to be higher up on your list. Okay, cool. What's your ranking, Torben? So for my ranking, I would go The Return of the King, The Fellowship, The Twin Towers. Then I would go The Unexpected Journey, Desolation of Smog, Battle of the Five Armies. Then I would go the animated Manimation 1978 movie. And then the Rings of Power, I would burn to ashes. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Okay. Return of the King, Two Towers, Fellowship, Desolation of Smog, Hobbit, Five Armies. And I can't count the Rings of Power because I haven't seen it. Well, all of it. All of it. All right, Carrie, want to add anything else? This, if this doesn't make you want to watch the uh, show, I don't blame you. Season two, Amazon is the devil, and they push and they tried to push that out before the writer's strike, so that is coming. I would just watch the original trilogy, extended cuts if you can, and maybe I'll read the book now. I don't know. <laughs> oh, definitely read the book. The books are incredible, and there's so much more to the books than there are in the in the films. So I would definitely read the books, and you'll appreciate the movies more if you read the books because you'll look at it and be like, oh, okay. 
you see where the, the director is going with it and stuff that he had to leave out because there's just no way to get everything token put into these books into a movie. It would just it would be like a six hour movie. So I mean, it's incredible. There's still yeah, there's the North Lord that no one mentions in any of the movies, but he tries to come and help fight Gondor and like there's a lot that is not mentioned. But I, I agree. I think that you should definitely definitely watch the movies, read the books. Skip the series if you can, or wait till season two comes out. Either or, up to you. I mean, or watch the very last episode, and then basically that rubs everything up in a nutshell, and you don't have to watch the rest of that painful series. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening. Dorbins, thank you so much for coming on. This was really fun. Maybe we'll all hate watch season two. <laughs> so special shout-outs to Ghana, Nigeria, Belize, uh, Chile, Norway, France, Ireland, Poland, in Japan for tuning into us and listening to us and being on my my list of people that follow us. So thank you all. We do appreciate it. We love the fact that we're international and we will throw shout outs to you because you know what? You guys are awesome. Love you and tune in next time to what's happening.